Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Emily Moyer. This is Strange Mosaic, and I'm super excited for this episode today. But I have to admit that um, I've also been a bit nervous, which I it's not uncommon for me to either be nervous before a show or excited before a show. And generally, like the uh if I'm one, it sort of settles out the other or whatever it is, but I'm very rarely nervous and excited. Um, and I am today. Uh, I met our guest several weeks back when I was on The Melt with Chris Snipes and his lovely lady who you're all about to meet. Um, and to be honest, I'd heard her for a few minutes on, I listened to their show before I was on it, but I wasn't familiar with her. And it was about halfway halfway through the show that I was doing with them that she just said something and got my attention. And then I've kind of been like, like not in a romantic way, but taken or sort of smitten since then. <laughs> I've already got a lovely lady of my own, but um, you captured my attention. And um, then we've sort of been chatting a bit in the background and some strange things have started to happen. And for me, the weirder, the better. So Hunter Muse, welcome to Strange Mosaic. It's nice to have you here. It's an honor and a pleasure. It's an honor and a pleasure to see you again and your gorgeous woman, Laura, that we love and appreciate who is here <laughs> with us. Yes, she she always says she always I, I tell her how much people like her and how much her presence is appreciated and felt. And she's like, I just sit in the background and take notes. I'm like, when I get emails, everyone's like, How's Laura? Hi to Laura. I'm like, people love you. Like they know, like I did this before there was a Laura, but it was a chaotic, disorganized mess before there was a Laura. And so she has enhanced the the quality of the production in more ways than she knows. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I've talked to Chris about that. You know, we he said that I've always had a podcast in me. And I said I would have never done it because I have lived in a world of duality and a world of secrets and a world of kind of keeping uh, magic private and kind of to yourself. And so to put myself in a, in a situation where I'm actually speaking about magical experiences has been a really new space for me. And so he has been the kind of the, the, person who's pushed me into this space. And I really respect him for that. And I appreciate it because I think it's easy when you're living in this dual world to get kind of sucked up in that and not really want to share your experiences because they are so esoteric and so bizarre that sometimes it's hard to put words into things that are happening. And so to have someone who is very pragmatic and a great critical thinker and a good person to draw out um, other people's experiences has been a huge help for me. And he's been a great champion of my story. And so I thank him and I think our partners are really an integrated part of what you and I are doing as uh, exposers of the esoteric and of something strange that's a happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so, some high strangeness. <laughs> so then that's where we'll start. So this is the, probably the first thing I wanted to know is, did you, um, did you meet Chris before he started doing the podcast or did you meet doing the podcast? Is that how you met him? Like well, you were a guest on his podcast 
And then it seems like at, over time you became the co-host of the podcast. What, yes. What's really, we have such a weird, weird history. I grew up part of the time in Kansas City and Chris grew up in St. Charles, Missouri. He went to the Kansas City Art Institute for, I think, maybe six to eight weeks in the early 90s, late 80s. I lived blocks away from the Kansas City Art Institute. We had many overlapping friends. He's two years older than I am. Uh, one of the friends that he was quite close with and lived with for a time was uh, someone named Motley. And he made a film about Motley. And when he made this film, I had been going through, I was living in New York in the uh, mid to early to mid 2000s. And I was running, I was curating a, a independent movie theater. And you know, I'm someone who I go by my energy and I, I usually use my energy as a guide of where I focus my attention and in making uh, these decisions of who to, to bring on to uh, screen their films. One of the reasons people wanted to be part of this system that, that I was working with was that they were able to get a New York Times review if they screened their film at our theater. So we had a lot of people from all over the world sending their films. And I was watching hundreds of films a week to try to curate and figure out who exactly we, we would slot into this theater. And so sometimes I would watch films on YouTube. And I was going through this period where I was feeling drawn back to Kansas City and the, my Kansas City friends and, and that period of my life and um, people I'd had very deep relationships with. And out of the blue in my a YouTube search, and this is where I'm very fascinated by algorithms and how they kind of connect people. I found this, this film called My Friend Motley. And I had gone through Facebook and, and friended a lot of people from Kansas City. And Chris was one of these people that I friended. But I didn't realize he was from Kansas City. I just liked his photo. And I thought he was a famous actor for some weird reason, because it was a very professional photo that he had on his profile. And so I friended him and didn't know that he'd made this film. So, and this is 2013. So out of the blue, he writes me kind of around the same time period. And I, I watched this film and I was like, I want to bring this film to the theater because this would be an amazing film. I have this connection with this artist. Uh, I don't know this filmmaker, but this is a really beautiful film and it's a great homage to someone and also a time period that I, I feel very attached to. So out of the blue, he wrote me on Facebook and said, how do I know you? And I completely unfriended him because I got all freaked out. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this guy's talking to me, unfriend. And then something like a while later, I friended him again and we didn't talk for years. So randomly uh, in 2018, uh, this is again, five years later, 
I posted a photo of my favorite artist, Elizabeth Frazier, the singer for Cocteau Twins. And very familiar. And Jeff Buckley. And it's a photo where one of them had, there's angel wings behind both of them. And one angel wing is facing upward and one angel wing is facing downward. And I posted this photo and Chris wrote me and he said, do you know about the history of Jeff Buckley and Elizabeth Frazier? And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And he said, oh, you've got to listen to this podcast by Chris Knowles. And Chris Knowles does these deep dives about Elizabeth Frazier. And of course, I, you know, I have like this mind that's like a computer. And so I will scroll through shit and do a data dump but not necessarily retain that each detail of that data dump. I just pick out like the most important pieces of information. And so I thought he was saying his podcast. And I was like, I wrote, I said to my best friend, I met this guy on Facebook and I think he did this podcast about Elizabeth Frazier and he knows all this shit about Jeff Buckley and Elizabeth Frazier. And, and I'd never listened to the podcast. So my connection with Chris, my Chris, Chris Snipes, was we started talking on Facebook and I thought he was Chris Knowles. <laughs> I thought he had done, he had done the, the Chris Knowles deep dive into Elizabeth Frazier. And he said to me in one of our first exchanges, when we were talking, he said, oh, you should be on my podcast. So I thought he was inviting me to be on Chris Knoll's podcast, but I knew it was called The Melt. I just didn't, it was like all of this information was flooding over me and I wasn't really absorbing which piece was which piece. And then I finally got, oh, this guy, he's The Melt. He's not that dude. Okay, I get it. Like I I kind of understood the, the connection and he said, you should be on my podcast. So I was like, oh, sure, whatever. I've never been on a podcast. I don't think I'd ever even listened to a podcast in 2018. I was very, <laughs> very, I'm a book reader. I'm a Luddite. I like pen and paper. I, I'm wax seal letters. When I send you a letter, it'll have a wax seal on. I'm a romantic. I'll, so- have, to, I'll have to come up with the reason for you to send me a letter so I can have a wax seal. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how I roll. I have this very like, you know, uh, new uh, pre-Raphaelite romantic energy type of a person. So I wasn't in the podcast world. I knew nothing about podcasting. I I thought, you know, that's for other people. I, you know, I like records, <laughs> like, like tangible things I could hold on to. So I didn't really know much about his podcast. And so we had this kind of instantaneous connection And that immediately developed, like, I'm the kind of person where I don't want to have a relationship with you on a computer. I got to, I got to smell you. I got to feel you. We have to see each other physically to know if there's anything. Are you a Taurus? I'm a Virgo. You're a Virgo. Okay. This one's a Taurus. And you're saying, like, she's over here being like, me too. Whatever. (laughs) When we did our sidereal charts, Chris and I are both actually Leos, which is really interesting. So that's a whole other story in and of itself. Have you done your Have you done your fertilization date astrology? 
Your current Kalenbach astrology? No, I haven't. So if you went to your like date of conception, right? I do know that date though. Yeah. Because I asked my mother. Yeah. I, I do know specifically. So I would be a Scorpio then. I forget. I did look mine up. Jeff and I did a show about that like a couple of years ago. I forget what it was at this point. Um, I, I don't have an exact. It's harder for because by the time we know we're like aware of that, like my mom has dementia, but also uh-huh. um, I was two weeks late for my like I was two weeks late as I was born. Right. Going up. <laughs> a lot of myster- mysterious things that happened while my mother was pregnant. Yeah. So I don't know that there's uh I don't know that there's a way I could get an exact date at this point, but that also moves things. And I, I as I recall, when we did that, it wasn't like because I'm very much what my birthday astrology, there's a lot of things there that are right on. There's like one or two things that you're like, eh, not really, but mostly it's right on. But when I when I did the fertilization date astrology, those things were also true, right? And so it's kind of like, it's very, uh, maybe one is like your private persona and one is your public persona, right? Like for myself, probably not a lot of people would get that I'm actually kind of introverted at times, right? I'm good at being extroverted when it's showtime or Mm -hmm. when I'm out in public at a party or whatnot. But, you know, I've heard the comment more than once from people who've known me for many years that I know everything about them and they know nothing about me. Of course, they don't watch my podcasts, right? But but um, I also, like, I do have a limit on how much I can be around other people. I do have a limit on, like, you know, sometimes I just don't want to talk or I just want to be left alone. And that doesn't seem how I would be based on how I show up here, Right. So there's sometimes like the cancer part of me, like that is the shell, like what I'm a cancer, right? So the shell and the quiet and the more introverted in some ways. And I feel like the fertilization date was more my extroverted, which is also like my, my rising, the Gemini rising, which is your sort of external personality, like that's accurate. So there was like all of these weird complimentary things, um, but it is interesting when you shift things a little bit. And, and then, you know, and then you kind of go, well, yeah, from one angle, I could be that as well. Right. (laughs) I have this energy where I'm very socially awkward and people don't ever perceive that from me. But what I mean by that is when I go into like a social situation, I'm not fucking good at small talk. I don't ask, Hey, what do you do for, I don't give a fuck what you do for a living. I don't care. I I'm the, I'm the awkward person who says, are you happy? Like I get in there and that makes people uncomfortable sometimes because they look at you like, why aren't you asking me what I do for a living? <laughs> like, why aren't you, why aren't you on autopilot? So yeah. when I go, I was great working in the theater because I was running the show. So I was working all the time. So I could handle a hundred people in a room if I was serving them. But if I had to just stand there with my thumb up my nose going, how, you know, how's, you know, soccer camp or whatever bullshit. I wasn't into that. So I think that that's the service side of that virgin energy. Uh, But I'm very scorpionic too. So I'm a good secret keeper and I'm good at duality and, and hidden worlds and that whole esoteric thing, the magician, I have a lot of that energy too. So it's kind of balancing these two things out that I think 
was useful in the in the Costaneda world because they were all about asking those questions. So I asked my mother, I went six years without talking to my mother when I was in the Costaneda cult. And one of the things, one of the ways that I got back into communication was with her was asking, tell me about my conception. Tell me about your relationship with my father. What was your sex life like? Like really delving into the machinations of that relationship, because that really informs who you are and the type of energy that you have when you come into the world. Like what kind of a burst of energy were you made with? And so I drilled into that without saying why I just wanted to know, but I didn't tell her I'm trying to find out if I'm a magical being or not. No, tell me about your relationship. And my mom loved to talk. So she was very forthcoming about who my dad was and the type of person my dad was. So that really helped. So I want to put a pin in the magical being versus bored fuck thing, because I think we'll dive deep into that uh, in the second hour. But you said a couple of things that already, um, like, I didn't expect you to say them, but it doesn't surprise me that you did. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about Kansas City, and I want to talk a little bit about Chris Knowles and that initial podcast that you're talking about, because that particular piece of synchromysticism that he was doing in the 2017-2018 period with Elizabeth Fraser and Jeff Buckley was a meaningful pivot for me as well. Um, so, uh, but quickly... You were on the melt before you actually met Chris. Were you still living in New York when you were on the melt or how did that? No. So I left New York at the end of 2013 and I was headed to California. I was born in California when I got involved. I've kind of gone back and forth throughout my whole life to California. I've always felt very drawn to California Northern California, but have always kind of ended up in the Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area. So I was headed back there because when I joined the, the, the Carlos world, I was living in New Mexico. My best friend, her entire family moved to Los Angeles with me. So we kind of all, our whole ecosystem was living in Los Angeles. And so I was headed back there because she needed my help. She was in kind of a bad situation. And she said, if you could just get here, I know that our both of our lives would be better and you could help me and I could help you. And so that was my intention. On the way, of course, you know, life has its way of twists and turns. On the way, my sister and my mother and my sister's son lived in did until my mom died, lived in the Dallas area in Grapevine, Texas. And my sister said, please come and visit me on the way. I really need you. I really need your help. And I was like, okay, I'll come for a month. And I hadn't seen my, I, one of the things in the, the Carlos world was to keep your family at bay. You don't want to be close to your family. You don't want to hug your, you don't want to hug your mother womb to womb because it's like two puzzle pieces that are chinking back together and you don't want that. So part of his way of controlling the people in his groups were separating them from their family and bifurcating families. 
And I had had a very tumultuous childhood. So it was very easy for me to separate myself from my parents, especially my father. So on my way from New York, I drove, packed up my vehicle. I drove with my two dogs and two cats all the way to Grapevine, Texas. And what was supposed to be a month ended up being a year of me staying with my family. So that was its own situation, dealing with my mother, my mother's ill health. My mother was blind at that time. She had lots of um, health problems. My sister is mentally ill. My sister had tried to kill my mother several times, fractured her shoulder. There's just a lot of trauma and tumult and they needed my help. So I ended up staying there a lot longer than I'd anticipated because I saw this very fucked up volatile situation that needed some intervention. So on the, the next journey of my trip was getting a job doing, I was doing telesales, selling tools on the computer from for this company that was based in Utah, but also had offices in Texas and also had offices ahead of this workforce. It was a Mormon company called Nebo. And they had a workforce of women that were in uh, California. So they would have sales meetings in California. So I was able to travel from uh, Grapevine, Texas, to California to go to the sales meeting. And of course, I'm, as I said, I'm an, I'm a energy person. I'm an instinct person. I'm a gut person. And my gut was saying, you may not be coming back to Texas. So I took my dogs with me. I go to California to this sales meeting. This is in 2014. And I was there for two weeks and my best friend's mother died. Now, she was the matriarch of my best friend's family. She was like a second mother to me. We were very, very close. And, you know, we, she and I had our own story. We ran drugs together across the country. We had, I had a very wild childhood with my best friend's family. So when her mother died, I get back and her mother and my mother were very close. But my sister, again, had this insane control over my mother because my mother was blind and my mother was very attached to her grandson, the only grandson she had. So she basically said, you can't talk to Hunter anymore. She's abandoned us to go to California, you know, really manipulated this entire situation so that she basically had control over my mother and was like, do not speak to her. So I called my mom and said, Hey, you know, Nancy died and my mother wouldn't take my phone calls. It was just a really fucked up situation. So I ended up staying in California. So from 2014 to 2018, I was living in California. I started to take gig economy jobs. I started to work in all different types of weird things. Like I was doing Lyft and I was doing Uber. And then I started cleaning for people. And I'm the kind of person with any job I take, 
I don't like go in and just kind of do the surface, like bare minimum. Like I will make your house a zero uh, like a zero room where there's not one fucking dust particle. <laughs> That's just the energy I have. Right. So I started working with these famous actors cleaning their houses. And Emily, I saw some shit. I saw some fucking crazy shit. I'll just say that. Right. And we can put a pin in that. <laughs> okay. So, so again, I had been this whole time, I had been having this draw or this feeling for Kansas City and this need to go back there and this need to connect. It was like a ghost town to me. Like I had left all this energy there and I needed to go and explore it. So I started to organize these uh, reunions of like club kid reunions and getting people that were my friends 35 years ago back together again and just kind of reconnecting with this old world that I'd had and part of it was maybe a recapitulation but I think another part was just trying to understand these periods of my life and where I was and what had happened in those periods so in that transition, one of the people that I connected with was Chris. Now, Chris didn't come to any of these reunions. He uh, had a family at that time, two children, a now ex-wife, and he had his whole life in Lawrence, Kansas. So he had his whole thing going on. He had just started his podcast we connected via this post and in 2018 i basically said we we got together december 16th of 2018 and i basically said i'm not going to have an internet relationship with you if we are going to be together we are going to be flesh and blood people like that actually interact so it was very quick that i came to lawrence to see him and to meet him. And we had just this explosive, instantaneous, physical connection of knowing each other. It was, it was so weird because we'd had all of these kind of parallel lines that had happened throughout the years. And it was kind of like a sliding doors thing. Like he'd walk into one door and I'd walk into the other, but we'd never cross paths. But there are millions of opportunities. I say to him all the time, I can't wait for the life review where we see how many times we were in the same room together. <laughs> right. And okay. We just don't realize it. So, okay. So at that time when you were first a guest on the podcast, was that time when you were first getting together and getting to, was we that were living together by that point. You were already I'd, living together. I'd okay. already moved to Lawrence. Gotcha. Because once, okay. once I met him, I was like, oh, okay. You're my person. I'm not supposed to be in California smoking weed and cleaning houses. Like that's not my life. Like that's a, that's a moment of my life, but this is, this is where what's real and this is where I'm supposed to be. So almost immediately. And I had money. I was, I was making great money cleaning houses. It, you, you would be shocked how <laughs> lucrative being a slave is <laughs> really lucrative. And so, Go ahead. I was traveling a lot, like back and forth. And then finally I was like, okay, I'll pay for my place in, in California. And I'll just kind of keep that as a placeholder to keep all my stuff, but let's 
like live together. Let's be together. So I found a house in Lawrence. I moved into this house and then basically that house sat fairly empty and I just spent most of my time with him. So you were back and forthing between Southern California and Kansas City. And during that back and forthing is when you got acquainted, not reacquainted. It was first time acquainted because you had never crossed yeah. paths really before. And then yeah. it became back and forth between California and Lawrence. Okay. All right. I got it. So there's a couple I'm of. Still, and I've still never listened to that Chris Knowles podcast. <laughs> oh, okay. Not Elizabeth, right? All right. You, it, it, you should. So I don't know if we're talking about the same one, but the one I'm talking about was it wasn't his first appearance on the higher side chats but it was the one where he really went through the this his his synchromistic thread on elizabeth frazier with all the things in memphis with the black pyramid with you know jeff buckley it was it was quite extensive that's the one that i'm speaking of i'm not sure which one chris is talking i think, I think it's one. that one yeah so i'll tell you my sort of experience with that in just a minute but i want to there's a couple of things i want to say because one of the things that i didn't catch this right away i only caught this when we chatted the other night about twin peaks not when not when i was on your show when we chatted about twin peaks and then when i was getting ready to to interview you today um there's quite a lot of similarities between you and i um in terms of um places that we've been, people that we've been around and pe people that we've been with and the kind of strange, strange attractor that seems to either be controlling or be controlled by us. I don't, I don't know what that is. Right. But it seems to be like, there's a resonance. There's a frequency that I, that I recognize, even though in a lot of ways, like we present very differently as very different sort of kind of people and, and, and whatnot. And then as I learn a little bit more about you, I can see some interesting things, but the amount of overlap is actually incredible. Um, and the way you describe your relationship with Los Angeles and with California is very similar to how I feel about it. Now, I grew up in Los Angeles. I know you grew up in West Covina or you were born there. Um, I'm certainly familiar with that. Had lots of gymnastics meet there at Charter Oak there when I was a kid and even co coached gymnastics there for a while. Um, but my feeling about Los Angeles was pretty much always like there was a lot of the, it was home. But I kind of hated it. Like, I kind of didn't feel like I fit in there. It just, I, I my whole life, I couldn't wait to, like, grow up and move to New York. Like, most girls, like, want to get married and have babies and play house and shit. I just wanted to move to New York and, like, eat at a different fancy restaurant every day. And who knew what else I was going to do, right? But I, 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 from the time I turned 18, I started moving away from home a lot. And every time... I would come back to Los Angeles in between. Like I've never gone from somewhere else to somewhere else. It was almost like um, there was just this urge, this yearning to go home. And I don't know, like at this point, is it just like the MKUltra program calling me back in? Is it the resonance of the local particle accelerator? Is that like my homing device is to that? Is it some sort of, connection or attachment to the land or some sort of experience that I'm trying to sort out. But I always went home in between other adventures. And then in 2009, I found myself like, you know, I had like 
I had been moving around everywhere, like basically running from myself, you know, like secretly very addicted to drugs, not wanting people to know, keeping thinking that if I went somewhere where my drug dealer or my friends that did drugs wasn't, then it, I would, it would be okay and whatnot. But everywhere I went there, I was. And I finally just was like, I have to go back to Los Angeles and just sort it out there because that's where it started. Right. And, and, and so I had to go back and it was many, many years before I got clean from drugs. Um, but I just surrendered to that. I had to go home. Um, like there were, it, you know, and it's when you're talking about Kansas city, I started to feel like um, there's no place like home, like very Dorothy, very wizard of Oz. Um, and while I'm not from Kansas, like I have a very strong resonance with that because I did play, uh, I did play, what the fuck, I can't think of her name right now. Judy Garland. Judy Garland. <laughs> I played Judy Garland as a, in a movie as a child, right? And I'm very certain that that was where like my yellow brick road was laid out, mm -hmm. right? And, and so, and what when you were talking about all of this sort of sliding doors of the way that you, you know, met Chris and whatnot, like she and I even have some weird thing resonant also to uh, the Wizard of Oz and to that whole sort of scenario. She's from South Dakota, which is where Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, actually is from and what the inspiration was from, even though it was set in Kansas or whatever. And we have an interesting story that, that I've recounted before. I, I don't know if I'll say it again right now here, but when you were talking about the overlap between you and Chris, like I also think that there's some funny overlap going on between you and I, because it seems like every play, like it was, so I think I heard you say that, well, you're obviously from, from Los Angeles. So there's that. Um, but you know, both of my parents went to UCLA. I went to UCLA for a short period of time. I had a conversation with my father the other day about Carlos Castaneda to see if possibly he knew him and he couldn't recall. And right. I had never thought about this because for all of the research and things that I've looked into, like Carlos Castaneda has really been far off to the side for me. Like it's come up in, in podcasts because my co like Michael might, might bring it up. Or like Howdy, I've done probably 10 shows with Howdy and probably close to 150 shows with Michael and Howdy's brought it up and Michael's brought it up. But that's it with all the other MKUltra, weird project, mind control kind of things. It's not someone that's front and center in the way that he obviously should be. So when I'm listening to you and listening to this story is, you know, my father went to UCLA and has a, you know, his bachelor's degree and his law degree from UCLA. My mother has her bachelor's and her master's. And my my dad has a PhD, not from UCLA. It's from University of London. Um, but I started asking him if he was around at the same time. I asked him if this would be what would happen with a PhD, because I heard you saying about how he was he got his degree without any what you were calling field notes or whatever. So I, I asked my dad about this. My dad isn't sure he, he couldn't say yes or no that he knew him or not or that he was around when he was there or not um and at first i perceived what he said about the notes i asked my dad about that he's like well i didn't turn my notes in either i was like but you had them right and it was expected that if they wanted to see your notes right then then you would then you would have them right he's like yeah like he had notations in his 
in his thesis and whatever, but he said he never turned them in. But my father's he, I've never read his thesis and I just thought about, so at first I was thinking my dad refuted the idea that you could get a PhD without notes. But then I started thinking later and I was like, he did say he didn't ever turn them in. Right. right? I think that's and, different for anthropology. Well, my dad, my dad is an African with an African history, uh, African studies, like kind of thing. So it's not quite anthropology, but it's kind of right. similar. But right. my father's thesis is about a similar thing. I, this clicked with me after I had the conversation. So at first I'm like, no, no, my dad, I think what he said was that it would never happen. But he did say he didn't turn him in. And then I started thinking about what his his PhD or his thesis is literally called, I think this is right, the memories of Joseph Scotch Coco, which was like some person from some African tribe in, I can't remember if it was in Kenya or in somewhere in South Africa. Right. But the memoir of Joseph Scotch Coco sounds quite a bit like teachings of Don Juan. Right. <laughs> right. So now my father obviously is no Carlos Castaneda, but my dad get did get pulled into living in South Africa for quite a long time and very, you know, and then my sister also has a PhD in black studies and did her PhD in South Africa. And she had the same advisor, handler, advisor that my dad had. Right. <laughs> so this is, I do think that there is like this, it's a template, right? And they they sort of run it through all kinds of different things. I didn't realize that Carlos Castaneda had gone to UCLA, um, but some things that you said that he and other people said about things about UCLA, I know to be true from my own experiences there, from the stories that other people who I know have either been in projects or tangentially related to people who've been in projects have said about UCLA in some of the exact, like the location, the fountain that you were talking about and whatnot, like these have come up in other stories. Um, but, and there's, I mean, I think UCLA, like for all of what we hear about, you know, Stanford and some other schools, I actually think it's like the most active at UCLA. There's the most different sort of tracks and programs going on just because of its, you know, how close it is to Hollywood. And because it's always been the most diverse and multicultural university in the United States, like pretty much always been. I mean, I think that's been since the beginning, it's been something that they've gone for. So that gives so many different tracks. Um, but uh, where was I going? There was something I wanted. Oh, the overlap. So there's that. But then I heard you say that you moved to Austin in like 1994, 1995. And that's when I started moving that like visiting Austin. And then I, I didn't move here till 99, but I started coming here then. And then I moved, lived in, in 96, 97. I lived in Tucson, Arizona, and I had some of the strangest experiences of my life there. And what's funny is some of the experiences I had there, like recounted with Michael when we were looking at um, some of the things about the Toltec and about uh, the book, The Four Agreements, which I think is like the rebirth of the Carlos Castaneda stuff for the Burning Man generation, largely. Like it's- Yeah, yeah, Carlos- was not a fan of Don Miguel Ruiz and, and basically said he he'd stolen his work 
So he he called him basically like a ripoff artist. Like he yeah. completely disavowed the four agreements and they always do that though, right? Like yeah, that's sure. how these things always go. So I was in Tucson and had some of the weirdest experiences of my life when I was living in Arizona. And it was before I had um the lexicon or the awareness of possible experiences that I have now. So it was just like, okay, that's weird. But there's, I didn't, I wasn't into esoterics. I didn't know about any of this other stuff. Right. And then I was in New York. Right. And, and uh, I'm obviously here now again. Um, but uh, you know, it seems like there was kind of overlap. And also you spend a lot of time in Malibu, as did I. Obviously, I grew up in Chatsworth. I lived a good portion of my life as a youngster and as a child. And the connections between Chatsworth and Malibu, and, and I did live and work there off of Liberty Canyon, sort of on the 101 side for a number of years and worked in Malibu. It almost seems like whatever the magnetic attraction kind of thing is, it was calling us to the same places for some of these experiences. Well, two, two places that uh, came up in Costaneda's world were Trancas Canyon, the Trancas Beach, which I spent a lot of time doing hallucinogens on that beach and having high strangeness, and the Botanical Gardens at UCLA. He said that that the botanical gardens at UCLA and Trancas Canyon and Eaton Canyon in Pasadena, all three of these places were portals or vortices. All right, let's just pull up. Let's do a little bit of uh, screen sharing here so people can get an idea of what we're talking about here. All places that I'm familiar with. So I used to live very close. I actually lived sort of off of Cornell uh in in malibu for a bit so i'm very you know familiar uh with some of this back here um so trancas canyon here i worked in malibu i worked at the malibu country mart we've talked about malibu on this show several times is there like a location here that is showing that is kind of like the way you see it i mean this is the trancas canyon nursery but i'm looking for something that is the beach is the place that he said was the vortices okay so if you take yeah right there Okay, so here's that. And let's show people Eaton Canyon in Pasadena. Fucking my, my dad lives in Pasadena now, by the way, actually in, in, in um, what's it called? Uh, San Marino, right? But there's the waterfall there. right there. Yeah. And right there. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So where I'm trying to remember where exactly, oh, where is Eaton Canyon? Is it near JPL? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So this is the, similar to the area that we went on that walk with, oh. with Sonia that time. There's some very strange areas about that area. Yeah. Uh, that this, this waterfall is actually a vortice. This is like a porthole that you can go into. I think that there was an inland ocean there at one point. Like we were, so I think you guys have interviewed Sonia Barrett. You know, Sonia Barrett, she's a good friend of mine. And so we were hiking one day at, near JPL. And um, we went into, it was not really on the Pasadena side. It was like more on the, the other side of JPL. But um, we went into an area that set off limits. So we were like, I'm going to go in there. And it was a hiking back there. And we started to see what looked like an ocean floor. Like we were seeing shells and pieces of seaweed and what looked like 
driftwood and fossilized pieces of things and whatnot, right? So it was crazy to me, like having grown up there, like I've not heard the lore of like an inland ocean there, but it would make sense as to why JPL would want to be there. This is also some of what I've noticed about the location in Chatsworth is there's evidence of many different kinds of landscapes there. Like at one time it was a forest, at one time it was a desert, at one time it was an ocean and it's all still there. So it was kind of like that. Um, and then the other location that you were just saying, what was the the next location you said? You said Troncus? Botanical, botanical, botanical Gardens garden. at UCLA. Let's go look so people can see. Um, let me get my screen share going back after I pull it up here. Okay. Oh, yeah, I've been here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A long time ago, but I've been to this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, we were looking at um, the Kirsten Bosch Botanical Gardens in Cape Town, South Africa at the, uh, at, at, during our uh, Jeff and I's morning dump the other day, because my, my mother was like very, very interested in, in Kirsten Bosch and the, the flowers that they're famous for there are the proteas. Do you know what a protea flower is? No. So it, um, I'll show you. Um, but I think the attraction for my mom, right? So this is a protea. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Of course. Is that, is that this is part of Project Artichoke, yep. which, I, which I think was what she was wrapped up in. Um, and this is the Kirsten Bosch Gardens in South Africa. Um, and that is where like they have the most, like the best collection of very beautiful, very colorful, basically artichokes. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and they're called sugar bushes, of course. And so like that gave me pause to think about some of my uh, content on sugar. But anyhow, um, so these locations um, that you've spent time in, um, I did actually today just because I was having the the something was bugging me. Right. And so I went to go look uh, if there was a nuclear plant in, um, in Malibu. Mm -hmm. Right. And cause I think the places that we're attracted to are actually nuclear facilities. I think that is what is drawing us to locations, which sounds crazy to me at this point, like, Oh, you're attracted to nuclear facilities, but they're putting them in areas that it's not, um, it's not, I mean, it's not just the nuclear facility per se. It's part of it is the location. And so it's working out the um, chicken or the egg about like, did the nuclear location cause these these uh, anomalous locations or do they put the nuclear facility there because it's anomalous location? I don't know if that's an answer we're ever gonna get because I don't think we understand the nature of time in any way at all yet. Um, but I did go to look and see if there was a nuclear facility in Malibu. And are you aware of whether there's one or not? I would assume that there is just because of the location, uh, the 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 uh, distance of the nearest military base, which is very close to Malibu. Right. OK, so according to the information, there's no nuclear facility, but there was supposed to be a nuclear facility. <laughs> there was supposed to be one. Right. So I found this. I was just doing this like a little bit. This just sort of came to me about an hour before we went on. That like, I wonder if there's a nuclear facility there. So there's this article uh, from the Malibu Post from 2014 called Fool's Paradise. 
right? And it, it, it talks about this, uh, this nuclear facility that was supposed to be in Coral Canyon, right? Okay. And then they, sh and, 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 and so I'm looking, I'm like, okay, right. And they're showing things. And then at the very bottom of the article, they show like the area that it was supposed to be in, in the background, they show Larry Ellison's yacht. And do you know who Larry Ellison is? Yes. Okay. So Larry Ellison is one of these characters that I've, like, I have lots of stuff with, and I'm very suspicious of this person. And compared to like all of the other, like, <laughs> guys he gets off pretty easy right it's not he doesn't take as much heat as bill gates or elon musk or even jeff right. Bezos or whatnot he flies really really tightly under the radar um but it was funny because that yacht is 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 right where he bought like half of malibu in about 2011 or 2012 and during the time he bought that location it was hugely pivotal for me because I had been very, very fearful that there would be what everyone was talking about, which was called the global coastal event, which would be like a tsunami, right? Do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm speaking of here? So I was very paranoid of that. And I was living in downtown LA at the time and feeling kind of comfortable because that was like the farthest inland I had ever lived in Los Angeles, right? I mean, Chatsworth is about equidistant, but it's kind of close to the map. I don't know. So I was yeah. living downtown and thinking, it's about 14 miles from the coast. Like, I don't think if there's a tsunami, it's going to come this far in and I'm on the 11th floor, right? So I was like kind of positioning yeah. myself. And then I saw that Larry Ellison bought half of Malibu. And I was like, his software is predictive software. Like he wouldn't buy half of Malibu if he thought there was going to be a tsunami that would like disappear the coast. So that ended my fear of all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I started to wonder like, okay, well, why is he buying this? Like what's there? And um, part of me thought he was going to uh, build a tennis arena there. He's a huge fan and funder of tennis. He owns the Indian Wells Tennis Garden. At that time, he didn't own it. And he bought this, this land and I thought he was going to build a clay court tournament in California, maybe a fifth slam. He was going to do that there. It would be really picturesque, kind of like the, the, the tournament in Monte Carlo. Uh, then that didn't happen and he bought Indian Wells. So it's like, well, what is he doing there? But his boat is parked literally just up from where they said the nuclear facility was supposed to be. So I'm my guess is going to be that he bought the land on which the supposed nuclear facility that's really there is there. And he's now, you know, got the access to, to all the dimensions and, and all the stuff. Right. So, um, I'm curious as to how close Carlos Castaneda's location in Malibu may have been to that. Well, Carlos lived on Pandora in Westwood. That's oh, in Westwood. He, he did not live in Malibu. Where his compound was. No, he said, like he picked out places throughout the greater Los Angeles area that he said were power spots. Okay. One of them was the Botanical Gardens. One of them was Trancas Beach. And then the other was Eaton Canyon. Okay. And these were all places that he said there were energetic vortexes or mm -hmm. portals to another dimension that you could access if you went to these places. Yeah. Yeah. All coincidentally <laughs> tangential to either military industrial facilities or nuclear facilities. So but isn't it interesting how we have like these natural wonders right near these, like it, it makes no logical sense 
if you're thinking like a normal human being or what we've been trained to think of as a normal human being, that you would think, yes, let's put all this poisonous stuff near the most beautiful thing on earth. But maybe nuclear isn't what we think it is, right? And maybe the beautiful stuff is somehow related to the nuclear stuff, right? I don't know. Um, so no place like home, Kansas, there's this overlap that, that I feel with you, that you and Chris were having this sort of sliding doors kind of thing. But then you also said there was another thing that I put a pin in. What was the other thing? No, no, that was, that, that was going to be for the, for the second hour. There was something else. Chris Knowles. Chris Knowles. <laughs> right. I didn't expect to talk about any of this. I was going to start with dark and we'll get to dark in just a minute <laughs> because I, well, because dark was sort of where you captured, captured my attention. And so we've been building to it with the nuclear facilities, but um, that, that podcast, I was living at the house in Van Nuys and I had recently begun like a very intensive exercise regimen. Like I was really, um, I had lost a close friend and mentor and I had started running during that period of time and really um, figured, like found a different way than dancing and music and whatever to be able to have that sort of conversation between myself and the universe or little me and big me or whatever it was. And like, I just couldn't get enough of it. Right. So I was running 10 miles three or four times a week, maybe five sometimes. And um, I was listening to that podcast when he was on with with uh, Greg, and mm -hmm. um, I there were so many things in his thread that resonated for me with my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not ever having been a fan really of Elizabeth Fraser or the Cocteau Twins or whatever, but it was amazing for like me not really. I mean, I knew who she was, but for not really caring how many weird things that like. I had that were sort of overlaps with her and uh, the whole podcast I was running and I was throwing up. It was making me throw up because there was like, he was talking about these locations in Memphis and these locations with different things happening with her at different spots. And like, these were all places that I had been and had meaningful things. And I had already started doing podcasts at this point, but I decided at that point that like the things that I thought were weird, right? That that I was not gonna really talk that much about because I didn't have any evidence for it all. Like I had already started talking about weird things, but not that weird, that I was just gonna go for it. If something occurred to my mind to say, and I was gonna tell you this in the beginning when we were talking and you were saying how, you know, you didn't ever really think you would do a podcast because to talk about all this stuff right? You don't know. I decided when I started doing them, but I had a further commitment after hearing that podcast, that right. all of these weird things that I haven't been able to resolve in my own head, they were not only, not only did they matter, they're actually the only thing that matters. Like yeah. all of this research and evidence and proof and all that kind of stuff, like that's all good and fine and, and whatnot. But the thing that when we're doing, when we're having these personal synchromistic threads and then there begins to be overlap between people who don't know each other at all and they're having like the same weird thought feeling interlace with something there's really something there that transcends physical reality that transcends linear time 
that transcends like our normal understanding of things. And really that's like, that is why we're doing this. Like we don't, we're not trying to report the news here. Right. Well, I think it's because it's what I did know. It's not what I didn't know. It's what I did know. And I didn't feel like I needed to prove it to anybody. And I, and I feel that, that that's where people get lost in this uh, scientific uh, materialistic perspective it's like you have to be able to replicate someone else's experiment in order to validate it and I don't think that what we're talking about are things that are necessarily replicatable I think they're so individuated that the bias comes from the observer. It, it's not from the person who's having the experience. And so that's really how I approached the whole Castaneda world was that I didn't give a fuck what they were saying at the seminars. I didn't give a shit what anyone else's experiences were. That wasn't my business as far as I was concerned. What my business was, was give me the information and let me go and prove it to myself. Let me go and see if I can dream. Let me go and see if I can see energy or if I can go to Trancus and have an a, a interdimensional experience with a being that's coming out of the mist. That was what proved it to me. It wasn't because I sat in a lecture and I got hypnotized. It was, and I saw that happening. What the proof in it, for me was that I was given the data and then I went out and I created my own magic. So I think that's where you and I are similar is that we are collecting information via our own personal experiences, not reliant on what someone else is saying is the real experience. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, while I have a healthy respect for the hard and fast researchers out there, we need to have them, right? We can't all, if everybody was like wandering around making up stories, <laughs> whatever, like it might be fun, right? But like, there are people who, who like, that's their thing to do that time and do the deep dives. And what's really cool is when like someone who's just had their personal experience, completely unaware of that has an experience that like, if you're, understanding how energy works, how reality works, how time and space works. Wait a second. These two things like are, are correlated in a way that is like validating of both, right? That, that is really cool. I mean, I think that's like, you know, that I love when that happens. I love when I just like weave together a story and then someone's like, Oh, the article says uh, the same thing that you said, but it came out five years after you said it or whatever. Like to me, that's the best. As far as what you said about Castaneda and the seminars for me, like, I don't like, I, I have a hard time with seminars. <laughs> like, like I have a hard time sitting still and taking in like a lot of information. Um, but did you find that a lot of what you were learning at seminars was just confirmation of, of something you would, things you'd already experienced? Like you didn't necessarily need to go to Troncus. You could go to Troncus after he told you this, but like the thing that was being described is like, wait a second, when I was like six, something came out of the wall in my room that sounds exactly like what he's talking about here. And it was just sort of like um, validation, but also like, to me, it's funny that people have to go to seminars <laughs> to find out the stuff to do this. Like it's just happening. 
Well, I think what my experience was, was that I first read his book when I was 14. So I was a virgin. I had very virginal energy, very virginal intent. I had a lot of energy and I didn't really know. It was kind of like all over the place. I didn't really, it wasn't honed and I didn't know where to put it all or how to, to, um, use it necessarily. I was capable of manifesting things, but they were very, um, young girl things that I wanted to manifest. So it was like, I wanted to meet this person or I wanted to go to this place. And so I was capable of doing things, perceiving something in the dreaming world and then manifesting it in this consensus reality. So that stuff came very easy to me. I knew that there were people many years later, I knew that there were people for decades who had been trying to find him. And for me, again, it was one of these things where I just rolled over in bed and I was like, oh, that there he is. He's right there. So it, the, the magic came very second nature and very easy to me. I didn't know that Truncus was a magical place for Carlos and I had already been going there. I was just attracted to that beach. I didn't know Eden Canyon was a magical place. I had just been going, like I would get in my car and start driving and I would end up at Eden Canyon. I would go to the botanical gardens, not knowing, oh, this is a vortex. This is a place, an energy place. My energy led me to places and then it was confirmed in these seminars where they would say, oh, this place or that place. And for me, I went to the seminars with a very healthy degree of skepticism because what I wanted to see was not what the group is saying, what it, what the energy of 400 people who have paid to see this guy are saying, but what are the people that are coming and standing on stage what are they selling so I was really kind of looking at it with an air of skepticism because very quickly I got I was like oh this is a cult this guy's saying because there would be people in the audience that would pick up his have his book and be like on page 325 you said da 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 and now you're contradicting everything that you said in the book like they treated his book as though they, his books as though they were a Bible. And what I found interesting, and I was like, hmm, this is a little odd, is that at one point he said, throw my books away. Throw those, none of that matters anymore. It's a new day. It's new energy now. So what I got from that was this guy is another P.T. Barnum. He is selling uh, mysticism. He's selling this, this um, esoteric art without wanting to be able to back it up with any experience uh, of his own. So he didn't want people to say, where are the field notes? Why can't you substantiate any of the, why, why didn't Don Juan never appear to anyone else but you? Why did you uh, cherry pick these women? And it was only women in your group. And there were no men 
in your group? And why were they young women? And why did they all have small breasts? And why did you all have them cut their hair the same? And and really kind of question the culty nature of what was happening. So I think once I got into this group situation and I saw how easily people were being hypnotized, there was a couple at UCLA, there was a seminar where I looked around and there's over 400 people in the room and they've all been hypnotized. Every single person in the room had their eyes closed and was asleep. And I was like, oh, okay, so there's some mesmer shit going on here. He's speaking in a certain cadence. He's basically brainwashing this room full of people using techniques that he's learned somewhere along the way. And all these people are buying it. They're all falling in line with that. And that's where I started to kind of separate myself because I thought I'm not interested in someone selling me a, another level of the knowledge because that's all that's how Scientology works that's how you know a lot of mysticism works is you buy your way into spirituality and to me that never felt genuine it never felt like that was the truth so I think that I don't know if that answers your question but I, I feel like somewhere along the lines I kind of woke up to what was happening and I realized, oh, I'm not learning anything from this dude. Well, all he's doing is pointing a mirror at me and saying, it's inside you. You go and have the magical experience and then recount it. But don't try to piggyback on my energy to get there because that's not how this any of this is going to work. So that I found that the most fascinating was that it was more about what I was able to perceive and less about what I was absorbing from other people. So I think, do you, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were, didn't seem to be raised with a lot of religion. That's a very interesting question. Um, my mother was raised Southern Baptist. Uh -huh. My father was raised Catholic his mother was a bruja in Venezuela. So she had a lot of um, powerful energy surrounding her. Um, my mother, you know, in the 40s and the 50s, when she was coming up in the South in particular, there was this kind of uh, base of religion as kind of what you use to justify behavior. But I think because her father was in the military and there was that influence of the military, I think the Bible was used as a weapon more than as a guidestone or as a teacher. So she, I think she was very skeptical of organized religion and because she had been so severely abused by both of her parents, I think that left her very open to absorbing any other type of um, religious doctrine that she could absorb. So she loved um, the Rascrucians and she studied Buddhism and she studied Hinduism and 
she was just kind of like more of a sponge when it came to religion. And I think she used like the buffet of spirituality where it was like grabbing from all of these different types of religions and um, thought systems and belief systems and not really adopting like she, I think she considered herself a Christian, but I think she used a lot of different um, arts. Like we used to do seances when I was little and yeah, she was into some weird shit and you know, I feel like part of that is the fragmenting of the brain. When you're severely abused as a child, you are capable of grabbing from all of these different areas of uh, reality and trying to kind of make sense out of what the world is. So I think that's, that's kind of how she dealt with the physical and emotional and spiritual abuse that she experienced as a child, because in, in the Baptist religion, God is a wrathful God and, and God, you're supposed to be afraid of God. And so I think that level of control uh, was very damaging to her and the church that she became a member of and really was drawn to was unity, which is a, another cult. (laughs) And when I started to do my, my cult research, Unity is listed as a MK Ultra um, institution, and again, oh. they're they're doing mind control in these okay these, so, these, so uh, sermons. So my I so okay so she was very attracted to that not, not traditional religion but that sort of culted mind. Right. So, okay. The reason that I had a suspicion that you weren't raised with a lot of religion was because you said in an interview I listened to that there, you were allowed to do whatever you want. You were allowed to read whatever you want. You were allowed to watch whatever you wanted, movies, TV, which is similar to how I grew up. There was no, you can't see rated R or you can't read every, anything. If, if I could find the book, if I could find the movie, if I could push play, if I could open it with my hands, no one was going to tell me no. And I I noticed, I, I, you know, I have all sorts of ways in which I am susceptible and vulnerable, but the sort of religious or the cult mindset, not so much for me, for a couple of reasons, I think. For I don't believe that there's knowledge that someone else is allowed to have and that I'm not which automatically puts you at odds with any good cult leader. Right. So um, that's not going to work for me, but also I'm like, I don't like, I won't, I'm not, I'm, I don't like, and I'm unwilling to do anything that is boring. (laughs) Right. And so the moment I'm bored, I'm out. Right. And, and, um, but that I, I noticed that a lot of the kids that I grew up with that, that were religious and that, or, or even if they weren't like super religious they were rule followers because, oh, I have to be home by eight. I have to be in bed by 10. I'm only allowed to see PG-13 movies. I can only shop at this section at the bookstore. And like, I was not having any of that. So, you know, but the, the I, I can see what you're saying now, though. It was like kind of this freedom of information, but sort of absorbing it in this sort of culted, compartmentalized kind of kind of way that made you attracted to that sort of um, environment 
Why do you? Well, something, sorry to interrupt you, but something that's a really important element for you to note is that my father was a professional wrestler. Yes. So because of that, there was this, there was the consensus reality, which is we can call like the TV reality that people see. And then there's this underworld of what's really going on. So was he like Lucha Vavum or like uh, Jesse Ventura? He both. both. He was, okay. He was, he was in the WWE. He was in, he did uh, wrestling in Venezuela. He did it in Mexico. He was an Indian, an American Indian in Australia. I mean, he traveled, he went to Africa and wrestled Korea. He wrestled all over the world. So there was the world that, and, and the reality that, the public sees and then there's the reality that i lived in which is knowing that wrestling isn't real knowing that these matches are predetermined knowing that the winner and loser is predetermined and those were the secrets that i was given to keep as a child and he was gone for major periods of my life my mother and and i never use the word victim because i feel like that creates a mindset my mother was someone who observed the feminist movement and what it did, how it it fragmented the family and how it really, <clears throat> excuse me, it fucked people up because it took women out of the home and put them into the workforce and it made children very vulnerable. So the reason I was allowed to watch whatever television, um, read whatever book, uh, I didn't have, I wasn't allowed to leave my house because the stranger danger and Johnny gosh, being the first kid to be kidnapped. And yeah, yeah, so yeah. I was, I was raised in a world to be fearful of the world that I was going to be kidnapped. So I was locked in my home for wow. most okay. of my childhood and yeah. she was gone working. And my dad was cavorting and traveling the world and fucking whoever he wanted to fuck and doing whatever the having kids with other women and just doing all kinds of madness, which created a lot of self-esteem and depression issues with my mother. So I was very vulnerable in that I was raised by the television. So sexual objectification of women and children was something I was exposed to from a very young age, um, over-sexualized reading. These are all things, uh, basically I was taught that my only value was sex. And the, the only value I had was the attraction that men had to me. So that was a, a thing that I grew up kind of entrenched in and was learning because that was what the programming that was what the MK ultra project monarch programming was doing to children. And, you know, I look back at the movies, I'm like fucking pretty baby, a movie about Brooke Shields being a prostitute at 12 years old, you know, taxi driver, like all these movies that children are being sexualized was it, these were normal films that were being aired on cable television. This is normal programming that was happening. So I think that had a huge influence on me because I didn't have the discipline of a parent saying, don't watch that or don't go there or don't do that. And so I absorbed all of this information 
thinking that that was normal, that it was normal for a 12 year old to have this heavy, high sex drive. And I look back on that, Emily, and I think, was I a battery? Was, was I being used as a battery as a lot of young kids were being used? Like what, was there this other layer of, um, you know, a demonic force or predatorial force in the ether that was feeding on the masturbatory energy of young girls and young boys. And this programming was, was the fuel of that. I mean, I think about, so a couple of things. So I knew this was going to be, this is why I was nervous and nervous and excited. Like we've gone all over the place. It's hard to pick a place to dig into. Cause I feel like, I feel like we, I feel like I want to meet you at a whiskey bar once a week for like a three hour conversation, right? The dark end of the bar. Uh, because there's so many things to go down. So this, I think we're just having an introductory conversation for everyone here and there'll have to be many more couple of things. So again, my non-religious mind never goes to these like demonic entity. Like I'm intellectually aware that there could be that and that people think that, but that isn't what my mind goes to. My mind literally goes to, there's literally like an energy collector, just like a technological, like a thing, like not an entity, not some like biblical demonic kind of thing, but like literally there's you know people wanting to run high powered machinery there's probably people building or creating or opening accidentally or intentionally pocket universes extra dimensions yes. they probably want electricity there too so to me it's it's more of just like an energetic exchange than it is about like something evil or something wonderful and all of that kind of stuff right but you know what th- what you're talking about right now um Like I can see a different application of Project Monarch through what you're talking about than the way I generally think about it, which is more direct. And Monarch for me is not like, that's not the project that I resonate with. Like for me, there's something different going on. I was a very busy child, right? I was a gymnast. So I didn't even like look like an, anything that even resembled an adult until I was like well into my mid to later teenage years. So for me, it's like different stuff. But listening to you talk, there's like an energy that I'm like, okay, yeah, that sounds like <laughs> that sounds like that, that could really be that. I have two questions that I want to ask you. And then I want to move into the supporter segment and I want to to talk a little bit about dark and talk about energy and and maybe a sort of different understanding of dark matter and energy. (laughs) Um, But do you think your dad could have been an intelligence agent or or like a um, information courier or something like that? Do you think that like the traveling around the world for wrestling was what it was. I'm not saying it wasn't that. I obviously, I watched the videos. He definitely was wrestling. Um, But was there something else afoot there? Oh God, wouldn't that be romantic? (laughs) That would just be, that would just be amazing if that was true. Um, I don't think that my, I think my father in 2018, I went and I visited my dad in the summer and I learned a lot about him and the type of person that he is. It would be really just beautiful to think that he had that level of 
uh, nefarious spy, you know, James Bondy energy. I think if he were, it would it would have been unbeknownst to him. <laughs> what about what, what about like I don't know if you've ever heard Michael and I talk about this, right? But I I'm I don't know that I believe anything, but at this point I'm of the thoughts or the feeling that a lot of trafficking of individuals is less about it's not that there isn't anything about the sexual thing that acts as like a great sort of blur and confuser of things, but it's about having a person's energy field in a certain location at a certain time. I looked at the videos of your father and this was a highly energetic man. So what about the idea that he was being moved from location to location to open up energy fields? Like I spend a lot of time watching like what else is going on when like the ATP tour is in town or when the circus is in town or when Blondie is playing in London at the same time that the fall wall or, or in uh, Berlin, the same day the wall is falling or whatever it is, right? Like what else is really happening? And if we think of people as like, think about those little devices in dark and we're gonna talk about dark in the second segment. What if that exists within somebody and when you have that person in, the, in your surroundings then certain things are possible that aren't possible otherwise. I could see that that being more of a possibility. And the reason I say that is because one of the things that my dad was tasked to do uh, as a wrestler is if you were a young man who wanted to be a professional wrestler and you were in the Kansas City market, for example, and you were working in this territory, you had to wrestle my dad. So you had to, he was the gatekeeper for young men. If they wanted to become wrestlers, they had to wrestle him and they had to beat him in order to become wrestlers. Uh, what's interesting about his role in the wrestling world is he was what was called a jobber. And jobbers are men who never go over the top. They never become world champions. They are the guys that you have to wrestle and you have to beat. And then you go to the next level and then you wrestle and then you beat somebody and then you go to the next level and you wrestle. So that was what he was basically a fall guy. So I could totally see that. He was a very beautiful man as a young man, he was a very good looking man. He was a Lothario. He had sex with a lot of women. He had sex with a lot of women, uh, a lot of wrestler wrestling promoters, girlfriends, and he made a lot of enemies in the wrestling world because of that. So one of the things that he always said was that what held him back was that he spoke Spanish and he wasn't able to do the trash talking when the, the uh, wrestling world shifted away from being uh, really a, a technical sport, which it was at, at some point, And it went more into this, uh, you know, very kind of cartoony theatrical, yeah. theatrical world. He wasn't able to grab the mic and do the trash talking. So he was kind of muted and, and unable to 
It really that's not he was he was there for. They, that's not I mean, like to me, it's very obvious. Like this was an energy being, and other energies were being tested against his. This yeah. is how experimentation generally works. Like, what happens if we put these two chemicals together? These two, these two, right? Is this person able to overcome this barrier? Like, it's kind of like, can you go over the wall that is your father? Can you go through it? Can you go around him? Right. This is, I, I mean, I, it's, it's very clear sort of that role. Um, but it wasn't the, the saying funny shit or, you know, <laughs> or making Not a show all. that way. Um, okay. And there's a lot of dark energy in the wrestling world. There's okay. a lot of homosexuality. There's a lot of, um, underage sex with un underage girls, you know, I, there's, there's people that I have to protect <laughs> in order to have public conversations. So I can't necessarily out certain people, but there are people in the wrestling world who were known pedophiles. Who... Do, you know, do you know Billy Ray Valentine? I know the name. I don't know. So he's, I know he's a friend of mine. I'm going to hook you up with him because he, he does this kind of stuff too, but he also has a, a wrestling podcast, a, a, a pro like, right. He's really into that. He has like a full other set of things and realities he does around that. And he probably the conversation between the two of you around wrestling and the theatrics and the dark side and the whatever, what's that? I can't remember that. He has like a, it's a podcast with a funny name. That's all about that. Right. But he like, I'm sure that you guys could tear into it in a way that he could probably help you unfold and unlock some of those, um, some of that stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll connect you guys for sure. Um, I can see that. I mean, just like I was living downtown during the period of time that Lucha Vavoom became uh, very yep. popular in the United States. And there was like, it would move into one of the theaters over on Broadway in downtown LA for like a month. Yeah. Um, and like, it's its own scene. Like it's like, it, it's, you know, it's kind of, it started to rise during, like got become very popular kind of it, during the same period of time that Burning Man did. It's like parallel, but different. It's a drawing on sort of a similar um, chaotic energy, totally. right? Um, and like the hangouts for those people were just within blocks of like the Burning Man people and the Lucha Vavoom kind of crowd and whatever. And um my cousin was very involved in in the the inception of Burning Man. She it was in the art car movement in Northern California. And she, my bo my boss at my other job builds art cars, and he lives in Northern. Did she would she live up in Apple Valley? Uh, in Vallejo, in that area. Grass is it Apple Valley or Grass Valley? I think is it Grass Valley. Grass Valley is where Grass I work at a pot farm. Yeah, and that's where it's Grass Valley that that the 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 boss at the side hustle works. Um, have you? Uh, this would probably be really fascinating to you on many levels because of your interest with the Carlos Castaneda thing, and then what you're telling me now. Have you ever heard of the Mayan Warrior sound system? No. Oh, it's fantastic! You would love it. Yeah, you would really. It's so they're a collective that met at Burning Man. And they have an art car that they have built over the course of many, many years. And like the style of music that they do is like psychedelic techno, like sort of Mexican psychedelic techno, but they bring a bunch of different DJs. It's not just one style, but their art car is one of the most fantastic things you've ever seen because it looks so futuristic and technological, but it's all engraved and painted and done by hand. And it's wow. got this gigantic God's eye that is like a portal opening 
like over the course of the night with the music. And you can feel like that this is opening stuff, but their sound system, like they have built it. It's a customized sound system over time. They travel with that. They don't use anyone else's sound, but it brings together, you know, all of the kind of elements that would probably appeal to you for sure. And it's just, it's a fantastical like sensorium experience that you would really like. And I was thinking of it when I was listening to you talk about how uh, Carlos or one of the teachers had told one of the people that they were the electric warrior. (laughs) And then, and then someone else thought they were the lecture warrior. (laughs) Right. But I was thinking about the Mayan warrior sound system. When you were talking about the electric warrior, I'm like a hunter would probably like this. Um, I want to ask you one more thing here. I feel like the next time we do this, we're going to have to pick like one topic and stay on it because you and I can just jump around and I know you and I know what we're talking about. Right. But it's because it's like, I feel like I know you already. Um, do you agree with me? Do you, maybe it's just, it was my own ignorance and it's just something I missed, but do you think that there's not enough attention paid to the Carlos Castaneda situation with M. Keltra. Like everybody is very focused on Laurel Canyon or John Lilly or Terrence McKenna or blah, 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 you know, or, or whatever. There's all these cults that we talk about a lot and we're all aware of Carlos Castaneda, right? So it's not like we haven't heard of him. But it just like I wouldn't have. Th- I don't know why. Like I, I don't know if I'm. Um, I don't know if this is like an intentional blindness because when when I have st- come to know you over the cu- last couple of weeks and uh, not just get to know you from talking, but I have felt your power. I have felt the way that you navigate the many realities and realms, and um, it, there's some crossover and something that I recognize. And so, and obviously there's the UCLA connection and there's the temporal cross with my parents being there at the same time that like, oh, like it's really cute if she thinks she knows everything, but if she doesn't know anything about the thing that is actually part of her technique or part of her whatever, right? That I'm running around like a blind and stupid idiot. Do you, is it just me that was missing this? Or do you think this has been greatly overlooked in the MK Ultra lore? Uh, that's an excellent question. I don't think that that anyone has put the dots together in the past 30 plus years with Carlos. And I'm not saying this from a place of ego. I'm saying this from a place of experience. I think I'm the first person who actually, because I was involved in the world, I think I'm the first person who actually said this was an MK Ultra mind control program. (laughs) because because nobody i think there's such disparate realities that people bought into i mean think about it emily it's such a perfect way to hide a mind control program behind an indian behind this 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 we always want to think it's white guys. We always want to think it's like German white guys or or yeah. or whatever. And that's such a that's such a those are such obvious evils that's so easy to go there and say, oh yeah, it's that guy that's evil. This blonde, blue-eyed Aryan dude. Like, of course he's the evil guy. But when you dress it up as this 
yaki Indian and, you know, it's a brown man with this mystical knowledge. Like, you know, we're so in love with the, the Indian lore and the Indian mythos that it, you could bury any mind control program in that and people would never see it i think that's why osho was such a powerful guru oh, yeah, yeah. i was gonna ask you i was like are you are, it was the carlos castaneda thing kind of like the wild wild country doc like yes. that shit was crazy dude yes yes where they're fucking everybody and they're stealing people's wealth and marrying their children and doing all you know just all of this dark shit is happening but because it's a guy in a white robe you're like oh that's he's a magical being and we have to do exactly what he says and shave our heads and separate ourselves from our families so yeah I think some of the Eastern Indian jig is up because of all of the like sexual things that have gone on with the gurus. But this is funny. Danny and I were having this conversation privately on the phone the other day about people who are really taken with like the Native American or in this case, the Native Mexican Indian, but there's crossover into New Mexico and California and they sort of lose their sense. Um, we're getting ready to do, um, I'm getting ready to do something with my friend, John Brisson. I don't know if you know him, but Danny's probably going to participate a little bit too about what I feel is like a very broad overarching psyop that was generated from Standing Rock that has been operating in every sector of any kind of alternative media, right, left, center, underground, anarchy, blah, blah, blah. Like it's gotten everywhere and it's been so slick that like almost everybody has missed it. Um, but that's the same thing is that people have this two things an innate trust that that those that 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 is like a different kind of uh, society and that they don't have the same kinds of tendencies towards uh, manipulation and corruption and whatnot that first of all, but also this weird like Western, I don't even, I want, at this point, I'm not even going to say like white guilt, but like Western guilt that people have about, I don't even know if I believe any of, I, I don't know what to believe about anything anymore in terms of like what happened and what order and who wronged who and who ate babies and who didn't. And, you know, like it's all, the, the, no, no one's hands are clean in this. Yeah. And I see that there are um, groups of people that elicit a sense of, um, philanthropy, which is kind of a weird thing as well, and charity and this desire not just to help, but in, for a lot of people, like you want to help them and you know what's best. Like they need your help to become okay. And so then it becomes this like source for manipulation going both directions, right? And and whatnot. And I've never, like, while I can appreciate certain things about Native culture, like, I'm just going to be honest. I'm always thinking with my stomach, fry bread is damn good. <laughs> like, I'm always thinking with my stomach and I, I can appreciate the art and their culture. And I'm sure that just like every culture, wrongs have been done. But I look at some of the things that go on with corruption, some of the things with like some of the reservations and the things they have going with their casinos and relationships to governments and military things and whatever. I'm like, this ain't the like, this is not what people think it is yeah right exactly. i mean yeah. I, I saw that a lot when i went to mexico and again it's easy to go into other cultures and presume that what you're seeing on the surface is the reality 
and you you kind of walk into something saying like oh these poor kids and they're it's starving and they they need money and we have to give them money and you know we would go in these groups there would usually be about 15 people in the cults that would go to a seminar like in Mexico City for example and we'd all go out to eat in a restaurant and come out and you know there's a, a three-year-old little girl holding a baby that's probably six months old and people in the group would be like do not give that kid money and I you know of course in my in my virginal intent in my mind I'm like why would we not help this kid and I'd be like okay well I'm not going to give them money but I'll give them food and people that were more savvy that had traveled back and forth from Mexico said, these people have parents that are working and they don't send the, the mother and father aren't going to go out and beg on the street because they're not going to make any money. So what the parents do is they send their baby out with the, the three-year-old because they can make hundreds of dollars a day with the kids. So again, there's some nefarious shit that's going on that when we think of it, we're like, oh, this poor baby and this poor little kid. Well, that little kid is bilking you out of your money <laughs> because mom and dad know better. They're like, okay, well, my kid can make a thousand bucks from these dumb white tourists where if I go out there, I'm not going to make 50 bucks. Yeah. I mean, I think just a very, you know, I've been talking about this with how much our concern for the children and saving the children and is there baby eating? Is there pedophilia? Like, I'm not saying there's not, but we can get bilked into believing all sorts of irrational things and spending time chasing waterfalls and whatever based on that emotion. Like I think about those Sally Struthers commercials, right? right? Remember that like, you're willing to part with almost everything, including your good sense when there's this fear that a child is going to go hungry or without shelter or is being hurt or whatnot. And of course we should be concerned about what happens to all yeah. people, but young people, but there's, that's been one of the most effective ones thinking also back to like, uh, we are the world and the children starving in Africa and all of the nonsense pop culture stuff around it that got us believing and doing all kinds of crazy shit and whatever, like, I think we need to like take a step back from that. And like, we're, we're very vulnerable to that one for some reason. Right. Well, and when I went to Thailand and I went to, they have like pool bars where you can go and play pool. Um, there's, you know, open, basically open uh, sex slaves <laughs> working in these pool bars. So there's brothels that have children in them there there are brothels that have transsexual men in them there are places where you can get basically every variety of sex that you possibly could think of and want in thailand this was all started by the united states government i'm sure and in the vietnam war so because what they said was they needed a place for uh, American servicemen to be able to go and blow off steam in quotes. So they used Thailand. This was a, a organized decision that was made. So Thailand is a place that is rife with uh, sexualization of children and children being used as um, sex slaves. I have a 
really entrenched, deep hatred for anyone who does that. Now, I saw men and women going and taking a six-year-old back to their hotel room. I think these people need to be lined up and fucking shot. Point blank. There's no, to me, there's no... There, there's no rehabilitation. There's no excuse. There's no uh, and, but, or we should know. There's no prison sentence. There's no reforming anyone who has sex with a child. That person just needs to be put out of their misery. Point blank. I think the, that is on a, a, a base level, but in order to do that, you're talking about taking down governments the largest organization right now of sex trafficking is the UN. It's the United States government. It's the Australian government. It's the Chinese government. So what we have to do is disband all of these organizations that are involved in that. Me giving money to Sally Struthers is not going to stop starvation (laughs) in Africa. Me putting up a meme on telegram is not going to stop a child being used as a sex slave. None of that shit is stopping any of it. So I think these things make not watching YouTube videos about. No, no. I think again, it goes back to the battery thing. So what you're doing is you're feeding, and I say demonic, when I say demonic or evil energy, a predatory energy, I'm not thinking from a a religious standpoint. I'm thinking more of from an alien energy or a um, interdimensional energy being that is feeding off of this negativity. I think that there's definitely something there that we uh, need to explore and can explore maybe in a different dialogue. But I think that there is definitely something going on with um, child energy and using child energy, using fear, using sexual energy. And I think that that's been going on probably for thousands of years, that none of this is new. I think the awareness has always been there. Um, What do we do about it? I don't think that that having a telethon is going to fix it. I don't think that there's I don't think that there's any dialogue that's going to be had between, you know, Liz Crocken and Project Veritas that's going to end it. I, I think that's all bullshit. I think that's all to make people feel better, to feel like something's really happening. This whole Britney is a sex slave. You mean, you mean, you mean they didn't clean out the bases last week? Come on, Hunter. <laughs> I just <laughs> all of these I think all of these things are to make people feel like they're doing something but the reality is that that's people chasing their tails and really nothing's happening it's not like to to try to pretend like oh we've just figured out that Britney's a sex slave really that <laughs> you've just figured this out like give me a fucking break yeah I don't know I just I think that you've got to, we've got to go like bigger picture in order to, to stop any of this shit. And it's maybe an interdimensional battle that's happening. I think it's, I think it's, I think the biggest thing is actually a personal responsibility thing. And I think this is where, like when you become responsible for your own energy, how you maintain it, care for it, protect it, choose to spend it. 
A, that opens the possibility for you to extra dimensional experiences, right? But there, I know lots of people who like won't stop something wrong happening in front of their face, right? Okay. They won't speak up when someone's being mistreated or when some, they won't tell the truth when like, you know, whatever the fuck, so-and-so, you know, cut in front, whatever, any kind of, you see things happen in front of you and you don't do anything, but you're worried about things happening to people you don't know in faraway places. So I think it really is much more of like taking responsibility for like, the, the, you're not going to do those things. And when those, when you come in contact with that, that's your opportunity to do something, not tweeting about it, not, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, and not but, thinking that Trump Trump is somehow going to fix it all. Yeah, that's, that's my the mind. That's the mind fuck of a psyop. Is Trump is saving the children? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, do people really believe this? That there there is this one person who is the quote unquote world leader who's going to stop this? Well, it's the belief in authority, right? This gets back to like that we need like somebody to lead the charge because then you don't have to. Hey, wait a second. When you see somebody manhandling their kid in a grocery store or or whatever it is, right? And no calling the authorities isn't necessarily what you do either, right? Okay, let's do this. Let's uh, take a quick break. We're going to move over to the supporters section. We're going to talk a little bit about dark because that was what sort of opened up the, the portal to the rest of the discussion. And then I really want to talk about energy and kind of, you know, you, you, we, we kind of had a back and forth yesterday about it, but like what actually is nuclear fusion and why all, why all, why all the controversy, right? And, and is it something that, you know, this is probably a highly unpopular thing to say, but I'll go ahead and say it. Like, maybe we shouldn't be resisting it, right? Maybe we shouldn't be fighting against it or trying to get it banned or outlawed. And maybe we shouldn't be believing that it is what they have said it is. And maybe we should just be asking more questions about it and finding out all the way in which it happens. But uh, so we're going to talk about all that on the other side and also um, navigating the very, very blurry line between uh, the dream state and the waking state and who's who in which dimension. <laughs> so we're going to move over. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash media, emilymoyer.locals.com or rockfin.com forward slash emilymoyer. But before we go, Hunter, tell people where they can find your excellent podcast. And if you have anything else going on that you want people to know about. Well, I am accessible from hunter-muse at protonmail.com. You can find my podcast with my husband, Chris Snipes, at themeltpodcast.net. We have lots of exciting uh, new guests coming up. And I'm in university right now getting my degree. So I'm super, super busy. But uh, please send us any suggestions that you may have uh, for guests. We're always open. And thank you very much, Emily, for this first hour. It's been absolutely phenomenal and I can't wait to continue. All right. Sounds good. We will see you guys on the other side.